Loving Father, we thank you for another day of life. We thank you for the opportunity to lift up our voices to you. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be in tune with your guidance, with your wisdom, your understanding. Father, we lift up our sister Siku this morning as she brings this important topic to us. And Lord, we want to understand as we listen, as we engage, that we can have peace in the midst of this controversy, this battle that's been raging over the souls of men and really, Father, over ultimately who will be the grand authority in the universe. And Lord, we know that that is you. We recognize that it's you and we accept you this morning. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit would come and attend with us, Father, that we could completely be in harmony with you. For this is our prayer and our hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my name is Siku, and uh, as Pastor Benti said, I work with the Public Campus Ministry Department for the Michigan Conference. Um, we work on secular universities helping Adventist students who go to, to non-Adventist schools to maintain their faith while they're on campus. Something that's become abundantly evident to me in the time that I've been working with campus, uh, this is, I, I came to Michigan in 2006, so 10 years this year? 10 years, um, and I came to Michigan to work with the campus ministry department. I took two years hiatus uh, a year or two ago to go to Andrews for my master's, and I am still completing my master's in, the, in, uh, in systematic theology um, because somewhere, you know, I kind of went to Andrews and I promised myself, I was like, I am not here to meet some, you know, people are like, oh, if you want to get married, you have to go to an Adventist school. Have you guys heard that? Like, that's one of the big, you know, parents are like, we want our kid to go to Southern because we want them to find a good Adventist, you know. Um, but I didn't go to an Adventist school for undergrad. I went to a non-Adventist school. And I guess true to the general prediction, I did not leave married. Praise the Lord, because I may have married a non-Christian. Praise the Lord double, because I went to a women's college, which means I would have been marrying the wrong type of person, right? <laughs> so I, I finished, and when I went to Andrews, I said, you know what, I am not here to find a spouse. This is, I am here for my education, okay? And then I left and I got married and I had a kid, which meant that I didn't finish my master's thesis, which is what I'm working on currently. So I'm still sort of a student and I work with the campus ministry department. This is all somewhat relevant to what we'll be talking about. Um, for my thesis, I, I am working on, so if anyone is doing a thesis, please do not steal my topic because I really need to graduate this year, so do not steal my topic. Um, I'm trying to look at the great controversy that we all know kind of the story of the great controversy and how that as an interpretive framework helps us to understand a particular text, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So that's my thesis, um, which I am hopefully going to defend before December is done this year so that I can be done with school. The reason why this idea of the great controversy came to mind is, I'll share the story. Um, I was working in Grand Rapids at Grand Valley State University um, as a campus ministry chaplain. And I was, uh, what we do with campus, we try to get the Adventist students on campus to be the missionaries because you know, if I come in as an outsider, you don't have access to the buildings the way that students have. You don't have, you don't know the rules in the school that we have students do. So we work with the Adventist students to give them training so that they can reach their friends and their professors. So I went to Grand Valley and there was an Adventist student there. 
met with her and she vowed to me. She was in her first year. She vowed to me. She said, I am not here to give Bible studies. That was the first thing she told me. And I said, that's okay. I'm here to work with you and let me know however I can help. Somewhere close to the middle of the first semester, she said, you know what? Could, could you study the Bible with me? Because I kind of, I have some questions and I want you to study the Bible with me. And I said, I'm not here to study the Bible with you. I'm here to help you study the Bible with your friends. So, I'll give you Bible study on one condition. That whatever I study with you, you go and study with somebody else. She thought about it and she said, uh, okay, okay, fine. We had our first study and she said it was a blessing to her. And the next week I asked her, I said, did you study with someone what I studied with you? And she said, man, it was too hard, but... I told my friend about it, and I told her that she could come and join us for our study. I'm like, sneaky girl, okay. <laughs> so the next week, her friend joined us, and we studied together, and her friend, who grew up in a Catholic home, she said, wow, this was mind-blowing stuff. I mean, we were doing simple stuff like the Bible is the Word of God, because it's like right at the beginning, you know? And she's like, this stuff is crazy. Can I invite my friends to come? And I was like, yeah, sure. So we ended up with a small group, about six um, young women studying together. And the first study that I gave them as a group was on the great controversy, the way our Adventist understanding of the great controversy. And I'm telling you, these girls, and they, except for the initial student who was Seventh-day Adventist, all the other girls grew up in Catholic homes. And they were just eating this stuff up. They were like, what? You mean there's like a bigger picture to all of this stuff? And I'm like, yeah. And, and going through the verses, we went to Isaiah 14, we went to Ezekiel 28, and they were just like, this is so crazy. Do people know this? And I was like, well, some do, a few do. And they were like, it just completely revolutionized their, their view of reality. You know? And that moment, because I grew up in the church, I kind of, you know, you just, kind of always have this stuff around you. And, and at that moment, I realized what a gem we have in this one particular Bible study, in the great controversy, as a big picture of what's happening in the world. And for the first time, I learned, this was uh, maybe two years after I went through my training to be a missionary on a university campus, for the first time, I learned that not everyone sees this. I realized that not all Christians have this picture. And over time, as the years have gone by, it's become even more abundantly clear to me that this picture is actually very important for the way that we view everything. And I want to suggest to you that um, when, you're, when you're sharing with people, when you're sharing your faith with people, uh, if you're giving Bible studies, or if you're even the way that you look at Scripture, I want to suggest the great controversy as a lens through which you can look at the world. Okay? That's, that's like kind of the bottom line of what I'm going to suggest in this seminar. That okay, we're together so far. No nods. It's like, lost me. You together? Yes. All right. So the great controversy, a meta-narrative worldview. First thing, first, worldviews. Um, what are worldviews? I have, oh, by the way, I have a secret aspiration to be a teacher when I grow up. 
I know I'm kind of a little bit on the grown-up side, but when I really grow up, I want to be a teacher. So I'm going to ask questions that are not necessarily open-ended. They're meant to be answered. Um, so first one is, what is a worldview? You guys have heard this word before. Like, what, what's a worldview? Okay, so like how you look at and interpret life. Okay, any other thoughts? Worldview. Anybody never heard this word before? Okay. All right, so I'm assuming we all agree. This is a really difficult crowd this morning. <laughs> like, no nods, no shakes. It's just deadpan look. Okay. Worldviews affect how, the way we look at reality. Some things that are included in that, the way we look at God, humanity, nature, scripture, theological method, etc. It's basically the way that we look at reality. There are three groups that worldviews can be categorized into, and this is broad strokes. Um, but pretty much just about any worldview, worldview, you could fit them into these three categories. The first is naturalism, and then transcendentalism, and theism. I'm going to look at each one of them a little bit. We'll look at, uh, I think it's five characteristics of each of these broad strokes, just so you have an idea of when we talk about worldviews, what we're discussing. So naturalism, the way it views reality, the material universe is all that exists. Everything that can be explained is on the basis of natural law. Now, can you think of uh, a discipline which maybe approaches the world from a naturalistic perspective? Sciences, yeah. So sciences in general approach the world from a naturalistic perspective. So in order to understand reality, you can do so based on the material stuff that you have. It's kind of seeing is believing, right? So if you've never seen it happen, then it probably never happened. So we've never seen creation, therefore creation never happened. But we've seen microevolution, so they conjecture to macroevolution, so that kind of thing. So reality is based on the things that you see materially. Their view of mankind is that man is a chance product of biological processes of evolution. Man is entirely material. Um, so generally speaking, how you came about to be was that because everything exists from what existed before, right? So for you to be here, you had to come about to be from something that was there before. You see where this breaks down? Where does it break down? It breaks down where... Where did the first thing that existed come from, right? Right, so, but where did microorganisms come from? We said microorganisms, right? But where did microorganisms come from? So, so there comes a point where, where you're, you're, you go back and back and back and back and back and back, and you're saying everything came from something that existed before, but you get to a point where you're like, well, what, how did that thing that existed before everything that existed come to exist? I'm sorry? Right, where did it start? Like, where do you get the starting point? So, you know, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And says this, this beautiful statement. Here's what it says in verse 3. It says, For by it the elders obtained a good report. Verse 3, through faith, this is, this is I think this is the foundation of all knowledge. Through faith, we understand, right, this is cognitive process, right, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed 
by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Did you get it? He said the, it breaks, naturalism breaks down when you start going to where did the very first thing that ever existed come from so that the next thing could exist if evolution, macroevolution is true. The Bible says that the foundation of all knowledge is actually faith because it's through faith that we understand that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And even as a scientist, when you get all the way back and you go back and back and back and you get to your microorganisms and your micro-microorganisms, there comes a point where things which are seen had to come from something which was not seen. Have you seen, um, there's a documentary by, what's that guy, he wears tennis shoes and he goes and he does exposés, Ben, 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 uh, the documentary is called Expelled. Yes, that is. The Ben Stein. Stein, yes, yes. I heard spelling. I'm like, that's not it. Ben Stein, you're absolutely right. He does this documentary called Expelled. And he goes through um, universities and he's talking about how scientists have been expelled from their, uh, from their jobs because as they were doing their research, they came to a point where they had to admit they had to come to a faith foundation. What did I do? Ah, did I, I think I touched the one that I was not supposed to touch. Okay. <laughs> okay, nothing blew up. We're right. Um, anyways, he goes and, and uh, what's his name? Uh, Richard Dawkins, you've heard of him. He's one of the foremost naturalist evolutionists, you know, in, in, in atheism. And he's interviewing him and, and I, ha I bought the documentary because it's worth it just for these last few minutes of the interview that Benstein has with uh, Richard Dawkins. And he asks him and he says, Mr. Dawkins, so, so where, did, where, did, where did that initial stuff come from? And, you know, and he's just like, well, we don't know because, you know, obviously we weren't there. And he's like, well, if you were to conjecture, if you were just to, to guess, I mean, just w w what do you think? Where did the initial, the, he said, primordial soup come from? Like the, the, the stuff from which everything emanated, where did that come from? And he says, well, you know, we don't know, but I mean, maybe it was aliens. I was like, what? Richard Dawkins potentially believes in aliens, right? He said, maybe, maybe aliens came to the planet Earth and then they dropped the stuff here and then the, everything began. And I was like, dude. Okay, I said dude then. Yeah, I did. In my mind, I said, wow. There, it comes, there comes a point, right, where this so breaks down that you need some faith element to start everything, right? Thankfully, through the Bible, we have a sure faith, right? We have a sure faith, something that is tried and tested throughout ages and ages that... Everyone at the end of the day is going to have to come to faith. And if you're going to come to faith, I want to propose the Bible. Amen? Amen. So man, chance, product of biological process of evolution, entirely material. Truth is usually understood as scientific proof. Only that which can be observed with the five senses is accepted as real or true. Yeah, we already talked about this. Values, there are no objective values or morals in this perspective. 
How is that so? Because if everything is material, values and morals are immaterial. And so they really have to come from, maybe they're just a social contract. You've heard of social contract theory, Stuart Mill. He said that, well, how is it that something is right and something is wrong? Well, you know, two people sit down and they say, well, I don't want you stealing my stuff. And the other person says, I don't want you stealing my stuff either. So therefore, stealing is wrong. It's just based on a discussion between people. Um, in that same documentary, I'm forgetting the name of the, the scientist that they interviewed, it's a really sad story. Um, I'm forgetting his name. He passed away, which, which is what makes the story really sad. But, you know, Benstein is interviewing him and he says, well then, what do you do with, with uh, morality? You know, because if somebody came into your house and threatened to kill your children, would you say that was wrong? And he said, well, technically, I can't say that is wrong. I can say I wouldn't like it, but I can't say that it's wrong. Right? Because what would you base right and wrong on? You have nothing. So he said, I can't say it's wrong, but I, I can say that I wouldn't like it. So he said, okay, so if somebody came and, and murdered your family, you wouldn't say that was wrong? He said, no. I said, I, I would say I didn't like it, I, it didn't feel good, but I couldn't say that it was actually wrong for them to do that. And the sad thing is, um, and oh, and they, then they asked him and they said, you know, so he, he uh, had, he was in remission from cancer, and, and so, he asked, you know, so the question is, how about when you're, when you're sick? You know, does it, isn't there a sense of, there's a sense of injustice when illness happens, right? When death comes, when illness comes, they're, they're just human experiences that we go through that you just feel like there's something wrong about this. And I think that God put that in our hearts so that would have the sense of there's something bigger than just the material. But, but he's like, you know, well, I can't say it's wrong. It just doesn't feel nice. And unfortunately, I think it was nine months after they shot that, uh, that interview, he passed away. And, and in, in, the, in the documentary, they have a voiceover where, where they're, they put a caption that, you know, he died nine months later, and, and in the voiceover, he's like, you know, well, if I die, then I'm just dead. You know, my life didn't matter. Nobody remembers me. You know, after this generation that passes, you know, that was it. And it was all pointless. And it's just, it's a really, really dismal picture. But from this worldview, that's the natural consequence. And I, and there are very few people who would actually believe this to its ultimate conclusion because it's unsustainable. Like, how do you wake up in the morning feeling like there is no point to my existence? Really, like, like I'm going to go through the day, I'm going to struggle all day long with all the trials, and then at the end of it, it's not even going to matter a bit. I'm going to try to do what's what feels good. I can't even say do what's right, right? Because there's no right and wrong. It's a very, very fatalistic, like very empty worldview. And very few people would take this to its ultimate conclusion. But you see elements of it in a, in a lot of different places. Okay, we're moving on. Transcendentalism is kind of the swing of naturalism. It says only the spiritual dimension exists and everything else is illusion. Have you ever met anyone who thinks that way? No? You'd be surprised that you actually have. Because 
uh, I was just listening in, I was in the mother's room listening in to the previous seminar. Um, it was talking about uh, the emergent church. And as I was listening, I was like, wow, these are all elements of transcendentalism that's, that's in there. Basically, that, that reality is ultimately spiritual. And the physical kind of is uh, incidental, right? So who you really are at the core is, is who you are on the inside. The body is just an accident of nature, kind of. The, the previous speaker, it was Carl Satovacetus, he gave this illustration. I thought it was apt. I was like, okay, I'm going to use that. He said, you know, that's why we're at the place where we are right now with... Um, the whole transgender movement. Because, right, if what really matters, if who I really am is who I am inside, deep down in my heart, that's who I really am, and what's on the outside is just, you know, it just happens to be what I am, then does it matter if on the outside I'm a man or a woman? Because that's not who I really am. Who I really am is who I am in my heart. Yeah? And so I can alter my external, like I can, if I appear as a man or I appear as a woman, it doesn't really matter because who I really am at the core is who I am in my heart. Is this true? And you know who I blame? I blame Hollywood for a lot of this stuff. Hollywood tells you, you know, like just, just be who you are inside. But you know, God created us with an outside. He created us as beings with bodies, right? And when he created us, he made men and he made women. And being a woman is part of who I am at the core. There is no, there's not this, this separation between, okay, now this is my body and then this is who I am. Does that sound familiar? Have you given a Bible study on State of the Dead? This is my body and then this is who I am, right? And so when, when you die... The body goes away, but who you really are goes up to heaven. Have you heard this stuff? Yeah? So you'd be surprised, and this, this comes from this type of thinking, that, that, that reality, the real essence of reality is spiritual, not physical. So reality, let me go on to the next one. Man is one with ultimate reality. That's what I was saying about, you know, state of the dead, like, the body and the soul, and the soul goes up to heaven, and the body, like, you know, rocks, because who cares that that's not part of who you are, really? Man's belief is that he's an, that he's an individual is really an illusion, because we are all part of a divine essence, so to speak. Yes? No? Sounding familiar now? You think maybe we know some people who might think this way, or we, we've heard of theologies that are like this? The foundations of this, um, I... I had aspirations when I was in undergrad to study philosophy. I, actually, when I was in high school, uh, when I applied to colleges, they made you write what your major was going to be. And I had just been introduced to philosophy, and I was loving, I was eating this stuff up. And so I applied, and I said I was going to be a philosophy major. And then uh, I was talking to my family, and <laughs> particularly my brother, and he's four years older than me. He said, oh, so what are you going to study in university? And I said, oh, I'm going to study philosophy. He's like, okay, and then? I was like, yeah, and then I'll be a philosopher. He's like, and then? Like, and then I'll philosophize. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, so you're just going to wake up every day and think? Yeah. He's like, no. And so I became a biochemistry major. 
Um, <laughs> but I did, I did love reading this stuff. And I'm thankful to my brother in retrospect because at the time I didn't have a solid foundation in the Bible. And now as, as, I, as I go back and starting to learn about the things that I would have been learning then, I'm like, man, I was going to be lost in the sauce. Because there's stuff in there that it's so subtle, I, 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 there was no way I could have seen it then. And this idea of this dualism, and I read this before, but I didn't understand what I was reading. I thought, oh, that's so profound. But now going back, I'm like, man, that is so insidious. This dualism between the mind and the body, that mind is over here, like there's this spiritual, this ethereal concept of you, and then your body is over here. There's the physical, and then in, in philosophy, they call it, they have the mind-body problem. Because how does the mind and the body interact? Because they're, sep they're made of different substances, is how Plato would say it. So it's called platonic dualism. But you know what's awesome is, when you read the writings of Ellen White, she has absolutely no problem with the mind and the body. Actually, the Bible has no problem. She says, what you eat affects how you think, right? She says that what you think affects how you act. She has absolutely no problem connecting the two. In fact, she says the two, it's your mind and your body. All of that makes who you are, right? And that's what the Bible teaches. But in this view, so naturalism, you have emphasis on the body, body, body. Transcendentalism, you have emphasis on the spiritual aspect, the non-physical aspect of who you are. Truth is an experience of unity with the oneness of the universe, beyond all rational description. That's why what is true for you can be different from what is true for me. Yeah? Because tr there's no truth, values. There's no distinction between good and evil. There, it's kind of the yin and the yang, you know? Like, they're all part of, it's all good. Whether it's, I said there's no good and evil, but you know, good and evil are all good. You know, it's all, it's all alright. I beg your pardon? Jesus told everything in parables. Right, so Jesus, he's making the point. So Jesus taught in parables so that for all time they would have relevance. You know, you, you'll always have a seed, and a seed will always go in the ground. And with the right nutrition, it will always grow. And you can always learn lessons from the stuff that Jesus did. I think, I mean, Jesus was, is, like the smartest human being. Yeah, he's the smartest human being that ever lived. Yes, he was Jesus. Okay. All right, worldviews. Well, this is the last one. Theism. Anybody in here a theist? Uh, I thought I was going to trick you. Like, a theist, atheist? Okay, but <laughs> theist. Okay. <laughs> Theism. Reality, God created a finite material world. Reality is both material and spiritual. Amen. Amen. Man created by God, thus possessing spiritual and physical elements. Truth is the revelation. Truth, revelation tells of God, and revelation plus the five senses in conjunction with rational thought tell of the material world. So you have God reveals himself and he reveals what is true in nature. We can also tell it from our senses, and we can, we can rationalize, we can think through it, right? Values are objective expression of an absolute moral being. 
four together. I think Seventh-day Adventists fall into this category, or ought to fall into this category. Here are some examples of the different um, categories that I just showed you. In naturalism, you have atheism, you have physicalism, humanism, existentialism, hedonism. These are manifestations of naturalism, manifestations of transcendentalism. You have pantheism, animism, pampsychism, panentheism, polytheism. Um, so, so stuff like uh, Hinduism would fall into transcendentalism. Uh, a lot of the emergent philosophies, like an emergent church, would fall into transcendentalism. A lot of Catholic theology actually falls into transcendentalism, interestingly enough. Like someone said, the sciences, a lot of times, you know, they're in the whole naturalistic perspective. Theism, um, you don't just have, you know, Adventism and Christianity, but you also have uh, deism, uh, where God did create everything, but then he leaves it, right, and he leaves it to his own resources. Um, finitism, where, you know, there's kind of like no eternity. Like, it's very, like, closed. Our reality is closed up to now. All right. I went through and just described to you worldviews, uh, gave you a rundown of, of broad strokes of the worldviews that exist out there. Why? Because once you have assumed a particular worldview, then it colors the way that you view everything. So when you're talking to someone who in their worldview is transcendentalist, and then you come and you say, well, you know, when you die, you're just dead. Like, the body goes to the, the ground and the, the, the breath goes back to God who gave it. There's no you anymore. You just cease to exist. That won't make sense because they have the wrong worldview. Yeah? Um, when, you're, when you're talking to, like, let's say you're, you're in the sciences and you're trying to talk to your professor or your, or your peers about, about the God of the universe, and, and they're just, it, it, it doesn't gel with what they believe because they have a worldview that prevents them from understanding what you're talking about. So one of the things, like when you're sharing with people, is trying to ascertain, like, where, where are they coming from? What, what's their worldview? And, and in reality... Most people don't have one particular worldview. They have they assume a certain worldview for one topic, certain worldview for another topic, another one for another topic. So when you're talking, if you you're trying to get at okay, what's wrong at the core, so that when that is fixed, it helps to fix everything. Make sense? Um, in the sciences, the Ptolemaic worldview for a long time, maybe like 1,400 years, was that uh, the world is the center of the universe. Earth is the center of the universe. And so then you have Copernicus and Galileo come along, and they're like, no, actually the sun is the center, and the world rotates around the sun, and everybody's like, no way. Finally, they buy it. So about 400 years of that belief, and comes Einstein, and he says, you know what, actually, with his theories of... of, of um, motion of relative or of relative theory of relativity, right? He says all the bodies in space are constantly in motion. Everything is moving. So the Earth is not the center, nor is the Sun the center. Actually, the Sun is also moving. And this is mind-boggling, right? And this, but this is where we are right now in the in the sciences. 
is that no, our little earth is not the center, nor is the sun the center. If there's a center, there's some other center that is bigger than we thought before. So our worldview in the sciences is expanding. In Advent, Adventism has a worldview that when we bring it to people, when we share it with people, it expands their view of theology. It expands their understanding of the Bible. And I want to say that that worldview is the great controversy as a meta-narrative. Once you have that, that picture, it's bigger than, it says that reality is bigger than just our little planet. It's bigger than our universe, like, I mean, our, our little solar system. Like, there is a reality beyond our little existence. And when you have that perspective, it opens up new vistas, like new understandings in, in the Bible. That's what we have to offer the world. Um, we're just going to read through the fundamental belief number eight. That's the one that deals with the great controversy. Um, I just thought we should read it so we know what we say as a church. It says, all humanity is now involved in a great controversy between Christ and Satan regarding the character of God, his law, and his sovereignty over the universe. This conflict originated in heaven when a created being endowed with freedom of choice in self-exaltation became Satan, God's adversary, and led into rebellion a portion of the angels. He introduced the spirit of rebellion into this world when he led Adam and Eve into sin. This human sin resulted in the distortion of the image of God in humanity, the disordering of the created world, and its eventual devastation at the time of the global flood, as presented in the historical account of Genesis 1-11. through Observed by the whole creation, this world became the arena of the universal conflict out of which the God of love will ultimately be vindicated. To assist his people in this controversy, Christ sends the Holy Spirit and the loyal angels to guide, protect, and sustain them in the way of salvation. And there are texts to support. That's a lot of stuff in there, and we will not have time to go through all of that, but I want to get started on some elements of the great controversy as a meta-narrative. Um, what, I think what we'll manage to do today is to talk about some aspects of the story that we've heard over and over, but to talk about some aspects of it, and then tomorrow we'll come and finish up, and if we have time, hopefully look at, you know, practically how this impacts our reality um, and the way that we live as Seventh-day Adventists today. All right. The story. Anyone have a Bible? There's few Bibles, I think. There are few Bibles, at least. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to ask a volunteer to read that. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5. Anybody when you find it? Okay, go ahead. Wait, what's your name? What's your name? Well, I feel like I see you like at that meeting, right? I mean, obviously, I'm seeing you at camp meeting right now. Yes. <laughs> okay. okay, Will, could you read that for us? One through five. Right. Thank you. Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah envisioned he sees God and his throne room. 
And the note that I just put up there is that to be in God's presence elicits worship. The angels that are in the presence of God, they're flying around, and, and God's presence is so awesome that they, they, they're flying with, with some of their wings, they're flying, but they're covering themselves, right? In, because God's presence is so awesome, right? And, and when Isaiah comes into the presence of God, he's, he's just... He's beside himself. He says, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of, of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. And, and he just, it's, it's to be in God's presence, it, it does something to you, right? It, it elicits a physiological response. It's not just an intellectual cognitive realization or something, but you physically have to do something. And that's why, you know, I, I worked with at the youth tent for several years, this is my first year working young adult, um, and uh, it's being recorded. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is it? Okay. Um, well, I have to speak gently. So, I was one of, oh, I was the only female on staff for, the young, for youth, and one of the reasons why they always wanted to have a woman on staff youth, and they had this with teen tent as well, is because, you know, sometimes uh, some of the young women would come to meetings uh, dressed in a manner that would uh, shame the speaker. I mean, as in the speaker could not look upon the congregation because of the way that some of the young women would dress, right? And, and they wanted to have a woman on staff so that I would be the one to go and, and pull them aside and talk to them about the way they were dressed, which is very challenging for me because, because, because this is why. When you see God for who he is, it changes you. You dress differently when you understand something about Jesus. Right? When, when, you, when, you, when you understand the whole, when you, when you have a glimpse, I'm not even talking about a full understanding, when you take a glimpse of the holiness of God, it changes the way you dress. When you take a glimpse at the holiness of God, it changes the way you worship. I'm not just going to, you know, be like, oh, what's up, God? I, 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 I even shudder to say those words. And I, I've heard prayers where it's like, what's up, Jesus? You know, I'm just, you know, I'm just here. You know, I'm just here, Jesus. I'm like... Do you know who you're talking to? You have no concept of the holiness of the God you're addressing if you're going to talk like that, right? If you're going to dress a certain way, you have no concept of who you are coming before. So I always had a problem with this because, you know, I grew up going to church and, and I grew up with those deaconesses who stand in the back. I have an uh, acquaintance of mine who were in primary school together. And uh, uh, that would be grade school. We were in grade school together. And uh, this was now middle school. We went to different middle schools. And she, she was not Seventh-day Adventist. But, you know, she hung out with us. And we were Adventists, a bunch of our friends. She decided to come to church one Sabbath. And she put on her best. You know how short her best was. And how tight her best was. But it was her best. And she came to church, first time she came to church, and the last. Because she got to the sanctuary doors and, and 
good, faithful deaconess said, what? You're going to come to church dressed like that? Go home and change. And she went home and never came back. Never came back to the church. Because you know what? She was coming the way she was, and she was coming with her best. But she had yet to see Jesus. She had yet to see the one who transforms the way that we are on the outside. And sometimes we get so focused on what's happening on the outside, and, and instead of focusing on what happens on the inside. For Isaiah, when he saw God in his holiness, it elicited a physical response. Now I say, and I'm not saying that we ought to we treat God anyhow and whatever, clearly no, but when there are areas in our lives, like when, when I have Bible study and I'm having my devotions and I read something and, 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 and it rebukes me because I'm like, man, I am this way. The goal is not, okay, now all day today I have to think, don't say that mean thing, don't say that mean thing, don't say that mean thing. Because, you know, sometimes I say things and it comes out mean. I don't mean to be mean, but, I, you know, sometimes it comes out mean. And, and, and then... I read my devotions, and Ellen White said to me the other day, she said, okay, God said to me through Ellen White's writings, he said, just because it's truth doesn't mean it's right for you to speak it if the motives are off. And I was like, Lord, seriously? Here I was saying I'm a good person because I don't lie, but I'm using the truth in the wrong way. And, and am I supposed to get up from my devotions and the rest of the day, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to be good today. I will not say anything that comes off me. I'm going to be good today. Is that the goal? No. When God shows us something in his word, which is like a mirror, right? And I see the reflection and it's ugly. He says, all right, that, that's who you are. Now, I need you to come to me. Come to me. I will take off that blemish. I'm going to take that log out of your eye. Jesus is the one who does that. And so when we see our faults and we see our sinfulness, it's to point us to Jesus is to say, go to God. And he is the one who transforms you. He changes your life. You need to see your ugliness in order for you to realize that you need a savior. So Isaiah sees the king, and, and what does he say? Woe is me, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. To see, to be in God's presence elicits worship. Isaiah chapter 14. Verses 12 to 14. I'm going to ask somebody else to read. Not will. Somebody else other than him. Um, what happens is you have these angels, and you know the sanctuary. Tomorrow we're going to talk about how the great controversy as a meta-narrative and the sanctuary as, a, as an encompassing doctrine work together. But you have in the sanctuary, you know the curtains? You know what was engraved on the curtains? They had angels, <laughs> angels, because in, in, in God's, in the heavenly century, you've got these angels, right, that are, that, are all, that are in God's presence that are worshiping him. And you know how in the sanctuary, like when you went into the most holy place, and then you had the, the ark, right, and then what, what, was, what was bending over the ark like this? Yeah, right, because, because in God's, in the heavenly sanctuary, you've got these angels that are right close to God, like in God's presence, right? And what Isaiah told us is these angels 
are, are in awe of the holiness of God to the point that they cover themselves, not just their faces, but their feet. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. First, give me a name. Trina. I see you at camp meeting too, right? Yes, okay. Trina. Here we have a contrast to what I just talked about. You have this angel that is in the very presence of God. He's one of those guys that are like this over the ark. He's the closest you could be to God. And instead of worshiping God, he, he, he says that he wants to lift himself up and be God himself. So the note that I have there says that pride robs one of the vision of God's majesty and power and enthrones self in God's place. It's possible. It's possible to be in the presence of God. It's possible to become in a church. It's possible to grow up in the church. It's possible to have been in the church for years. It's possible to have just gotten into the church and be and be right there in the presence of God, and yet, instead of worshiping, instead of bowing down in worship, pride steps in and prevents us from even being able to see God's majesty. This is helpful because, you know, sometimes you see people that, that you used to look up to in the church, uh, leaders, uh, church leaders, you know, the, the pastors and, and conference leaders, and, and scandals come out or stuff comes out and you're like, whoa, where did that come from? And if they're going to fall, like, what hope do I have, right? And it can get discouraging. But what this shows us is that it is possible for someone to be in the very presence of God and yet fall because of pride that wells up in their heart. Uh, relatively recently, um, in my native continent, you know, there was... There was some scandals going on in the church. And I have a friend who said to me and said, you know, this is very hard for me because, I don't know, maybe, maybe this person was never converted in the first place. You know, maybe, maybe they were faking it the whole time. And, and I had to stop and say, you know what? Sometimes people fall away. This covering cherub had a time when he worshipped God. You know, when we will... I don't know if we'll have time to actually read the quotes, but in Ellen White's writing, she talks about his heart being enthralled with love for God. Like, he just loved God with every part of who he was. And he was one of those guys who, when he'd see God, just bow down, not just physically, but in his heart, in worship to God. And yet, pride, this mystery of iniquity, comes up in him. And now he wants to be in the place of God. We'll continue with that thought tomorrow. Revelation chapter 12 and 7. This probably will be the last verse we can do today. And then, uh, yeah, we're, yeah, yeah, okay. Revelation 12 and 7. Uh oh, Katie? Katie. I knew that. Right? I saw you last year at camp meeting. I see, I see all you guys at camp meeting. So, Will, Katie, and Trina. Katie. You're from Ohio? No. Oh, okay, you're not Ohio. Okay, you're not the one I thought. Okay, Katie, though, you can read. Revelation 12 and 7. Okay, so you have war in heaven. Uh, I remember the first time that I had this realization that, what? You know, you, you have this picture of heaven, um, of these little babies with wings and harps, 
And I don't know how in heaven little babies know how to play harps, right? And they sit on clouds and they're just like floating around. That's the picture of heaven. And then this verse came along and said, no, stuff got real in heaven, right? There was war happening in heaven. And uh, yeah, we'll do it tomorrow. Uh, we'll talk about the, 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 the Hebrew word that is used in Ezekiel 28 and and because I, I always heard it, but I didn't understand like why we say that as Adventists, that it wasn't just like with my saber, my lightsaber, like, oh, oh like that. Lightsaber? <laughs> um, but, but, but you have this picture in heaven, stuff got real, and there was a war. And I put down there that there was a war between two angels. It says Michael and his angels fought, and the dragon fought, and his angels, right? Who is Michael? Catholicism tells you that Michael is, is an angel. He's one of, like, he's like, there's Michael and there's Gabriel and, and there's, who's that? Mikael. Oh, that's Michael, right? Yeah, but you know that guy. So, so who is Michael, biblically? I, I gave you a cheat sheet by giving you the verses up there. Who is Michael in the Bible? Jesus. How do you know that? Mama's told me. <laughs> Because my pastor said so. I, okay. Who's, I, 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 oh no. I switched. Oh, your cheat sheet is gone. That's why. There. I'm going to use this for the first time. Yeah. So in Jude 9, what happened? I, really, you're allowed to cheat and like open the verse <laughs> and then tell me what happened. In Jude 9, what happens? Because we, we, we saw Michael right in Revelation chapter 12. He says, Michael and his angels fought. And then the dragon and his angels fought. So you've got these two contending sides. There's this war happening in heaven. In Jude 9, okay, Michael, right, there's a contention. Moses disobeyed God. He struck the rock instead of talking to it. God's like, you're not going to go into the promised land. You're going to die out here. And he dies on the mountain. And then Jude, Jude 9 tells us that they, on that mountain, there was this contention that happened between Michael and the devil, right? And, and there was some kind of fight over the body of Moses, right? And then Michael is like, nah, I'm taking Moses with me. And, and the devil's like, no, he's mine. And they fight. And then do you know who wins? Michael, how do we know he wins? Yes. 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 Okay, because we see Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? So you know Moses was resurrected. Michael wins. What happens in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16? Yes. Yes. What else? Okay, what, I mean, what before? <laughs> okay, okay. Ah, ah, ha. Aha. Aha. Okay. The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, the trump of God, with the voice of? Archangel. The archangel, Michael, has the power to raise the dead to life. Who alone has the power to raise the dead? God, right? He did it here on earth, right? So, so that was the, the last cheating verse. Jesus, Jesus is the one who resurrects people. Jesus. The archangel, 
resurrects people. Michael resurrects people. Who is Michael? Jesus. It's okay. Precisely, it's a, Michael will stand up. So now we've gone through and, and demonstrated. Let me know if it's not clear, because if it's not clear, then we need to make it clear, because we don't want to lie to people. But is it clear that Michael is Jesus? Yeah? Okay. Michael is an archangel. Arch means chief. He's a chief angel. Okay. Jesus is an angel? Chief of angels. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Chief of angels, Will. Tell me your name, sorry. Ray. Ray. Will. Is he an angel in charge of angels, or is he an angel, or is he not an angel? He's an archangel. <laughs> That's what, okay, let, let me, let me, um, tomorrow, because we're running out of time. I'm sorry. I, my son is crying. Okay. That's my clock. That says, basically, you went over what you had said. I told him what time I was going to be done. And <laughs> he's like, you lied to me, Mom, okay? So, hmm. Uh, but I'm not a slave to my son because I want to follow Jesus, not my son. Okay, so this is hard for me to mitigate. Anyways. <laughs> okay, okay. In Ellen White's writing, she says, and, and we're, hopefully if... if if I forget and you want us to go over this tomorrow and show like biblically, we can do that. But I'm going to give you the short version without going through Bible tests and without showing you um, quotations from Spirit of Prophecy. So if you want me to do it for you, uh, we can do it tomorrow at the beginning. Or you can take note of what I'm saying and go check it out. Be a Berean and go check what I'm telling you. Okay? These are your two options. The better option is to be a Berean. But a good option is to ask me to clarify. Okay? Um, Jesus is our intercessor. Amen? Tells us that in Hebrews. He ever lived to make intercession for us. He's our intercessor. Ellen White says that Jesus' role has always been as the intercessor. The intercessor, not just man's intercessor. When she says that, uh, you know in John chapter 1, this is text that she uses. She says in John chapter 1, when the word became flesh, that Jesus is the word Jesus is the means by which God communicates to his creation. So you have Jesus, or rather let me say, you know, in the Godhead you have three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Um, the, let's call them the first person, the second person, the third person. Not by hierarchy, but just numbering them, okay? First person in the Godhead, Second person in the Godhead, let's say that's Jesus. First person, Father. Third person, the Holy Spirit. The second person in the Godhead, in terms of a role, has the role of mediating the relationship between the Godhead and the creation. Okay? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Precisely. But this, 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 now, now, what I'm doing, like, we're talking about extending our vistas, extending our, like, rather than just having humanity as the, the center and that's all there is, so there's, there's a bigger picture here, right? Not only is Jesus the mediator between God and man, Jesus is a mediator between God and creation, okay? So, before the fall of man, like, so, from whenever God created the angels, 
Jesus appeared in the form of an angel. Now this I'm, say, I'm telling you from the spirit of prophecy. You have to go check me. Jesus appeared in the form of an angel. So when you get to, when we get to tomorrow, when Lucifer is looking at Jesus, this lends credence to Lucifer looks at Jesus and he's like, what's so different between him and me? He's an angel. I'm an angel. He's the archangel, but I'm a commanding angel too. I say stuff and angels follow me too. Fine, yeah, he's like the big boss angel, but I'm one too. So Jesus is was, was in the form of an angel as the archangel. After the fall, what happens? After the fall, fast forward 4,000 years. Jesus comes down in the form of man. Because Jesus is mediating the relationship between God and mankind. But before, he was mediating another relationship, the relationship between God and the angels. Are, are you tracking with me? Okay. And I see lots of question marks, and I love it, because hopefully that means you're going to go check me out and go study this. Um, the war that happens in heaven, I said between, I should have put in quotes, two angels. Um, the one angel has a problem with the fact that the other angel is highly exalted over him. right? And he's saying, what makes the difference between him and me? I could do his job just as well as he does it, because... I'm an angel too. Lucifer, yeah. And he was thinking that of Jesus. He was jealous of Jesus. Not of God the Father. No, he was jealous of Jesus and the position that Jesus had. Because uh, we're drawing to a close, I, I have to make it, I have to bring it home a little bit. You know, uh, in, back, back in the wilderness, with Moses and Aaron and Miriam. There was a time that Miriam had a problem. And she was like, what's with Moses being the leader, right? Like, I could do his job just as well as he could. Somebody, somebody else had a problem with, with Moses' leadership. Korah, remember? Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. What's the big deal with Moses? I could do just as good a job. If they had problems like that back in the Bible, is it possible that that stuff happens in our day? That as a wife, sometimes I can look at my husband and be like, what's the big deal with him, X, Y, Z? I could do it just as well as he could. Why do I got to listen to him? I'm smarter. I did that one time, not just one time, but one time sticks out. <laughs> One time sticks out, you know, it was, it was getting warmer just this summer and we're going to have people over and my husband said, okay, let's turn on the air conditioning early so that when people get here it's cool so it's not going to be too... <laughs> Somebody who was there is laughing. And I said, no, 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 let's wait because air, I, air conditioning makes me sick, you know, I get, if it gets too cold. I'm like, no, let's wait. And then, you know, it's like an hour before, he's like, should we turn it on now? Let's turn it on now. I'm like, no, 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 let's wait. And it's like 30 minutes before, I'm like, no, 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 let's wait. And then the guests started arriving. I was like, okay, turn it on now. And it didn't cool down until they were leaving. Right? And I, was, I had to apologize you know, publicly because it was a public sin because everyone was boiling in our, apart, in our house. I said, you know, I'm sorry I didn't listen to my husband. You 
you know, because I thought I was smarter than my husband. Which is very humbling for me to say, maybe I'm not. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, having different roles is okay. You know, maybe, uh, maybe uh, submitting to somebody else's leadership is okay. Lucifer had developed a problem with that because he looked at himself and he looked at the other angel who, in this case, happened to be God himself condescending for the sake of mediation to look like one of them. He should have submitted to the authority that God had put in place. Okay, let's have a word of prayer and we'll continue tomorrow. Loving Father, I want to thank you that you give us your word, that you give us this great meta-narrative of the great controversy. Help us to understand the things that uh, you've revealed to us through scripture. I pray that you would show us how we can share this with other people so that they can have a, a, a more global picture and, and as they see you, that would transform their lives. We thank you so much for bringing us here to camp meeting. We pray that you continue to bless our time together. In your name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.